Hello everyone, and welcome to Discussions in Dragons, the podcast where my brother and I take an in-depth look at the world of 5e and all things Dungeons and Dragons. Opening and closing music credit to Will Savino at patreon.com slash musicd20. I'm Jaren. And I'm Britton. And this week we are continuing our beginner-friendly series where we discuss each class for those who are unfamiliar or interested in playing a specific class. This week we are discussing Warlock and Rogue. So, Britton, why don't you get us kicked off and tell us all about Warlock and why we should be excited about that. Yeah, so honestly, I love Warlocks. I think they're super interesting when it comes to character design uh, because of how different you can make each Warlock. Now, the one thing that is unifying about all Warlocks is that Warlocks are delvers of secrets and are, what I would say, gluttons for mystical knowledge and power. And it is this need for power that actually leads them to form these pacts with beings that are far more powerful than they are. I will say, um, if you do have a, a mental image of a warlock or somebody making a pact with something that is powerful than them, more powerful than them to gain knowledge, sometimes you might think of someone who's evil um, or someone with a bad reputation. But uh, I think what's really cool about warlocks is that, you know, in reality, much like everyday people, uh, each warlock is unique in their motives. Some might be making a pact with a celestial to gain favor with a god so that they can become more righteous and holy. Some might be forming pacts with an ancient deep being from under the sea so that they can be protected while on the seas and protect their crew as a ship captain. You know, anybody has any reasons to form these pacts, and I think it's really cool that warlocks, it's built into their character and built into their powers that they receive, you know, the choices that they've made to form these pacts. Um, and depending on the patron that you choose as a warlock, your life will be shaped by the whims of that patron. But in exchange for those whims, warlocks are granted access to deep and ancient knowledge, unique to any knowledge gained from any form of study. You know, different from how a bard might uh, learn through their college, or a wizard might learn through their books and their studies. Um, these, this type of knowledge is gained specifically through the granting of it through their patron, and sometimes they have access to spells that no other class has access to. So, as you might be able to guess, this is a full caster. Now, warlocks are unique, in my opinion, in their full caster identity. So, as we discussed in previous episodes, full casters are casters that have access to ninth level spells and cantrips. Now, while it is true that warlocks can cast ninth level spells and they do have access to cantrips, their spells are not being cast the same way that normal full casters would be. If you look on a normal caster's chart or their, their table, you would see how many spell slots they have to cast each level of spell. Warlocks differ in the fact that their spells are being cast at the highest level possible for them to cast them at. So, for instance, um, when you are fourth level, all of your spells will automatically be cast at second level. Once you hit ninth level, all of your spells that you cast, no matter the level, will be cast at a fifth level spell slot, doing the maximum amount damage 
possible with those roles. Now, this may seem pretty powerful. The one um, limitation, I will say, that warlocks have is that they have an insanely limited number of spell slots that they can use. However, they do refresh on a short rest. So after every fight, you could potentially take a short rest, and those spell slots will come back. Um, the maximum number of spell slots that you could get at a as a level 20 warlock is four. So four spell slots, that does seem a little limited, but we'll definitely talk about the Mystic Arcanum later uh, in a little bit and what that is and how you can cast your 6th through ninth level spells. So moving on, um, the stats that are going to be maxed as a Warlock, first and foremost, is Charisma. That is your spell casting ability. Um, the book says you want to follow it up with maxing Con second, but I honestly think that you could just max Intelligence or Wisdom second based on the type of Warlock that you'd like. Um, I'm actually currently playing with a Warlock, and um, that player chose intelligence as their other max stat they are incredibly smart and incredibly charismatic and i think that's a very interesting flavor of of warlock because not only is she um obsessed with this type of uh you know ancient secrets that her patron is giving to her but she's also a huge history buff so she spends her time in libraries reading up on other cultures reading up on magic doing whatever she can to gain as much knowledge as she can and that differs from another player's type of warlock. Uh, maybe another warlock would have a lot of cons so that they'll be super healthy and they'll be able to maintain concentration on their spells. But she chose to have a very intelligent warlock as well. And I think that's a really cool flavor. Now, their starting proficiencies are light armor and simple weapons. They do have proficiency in wisdom and charisma saves. And um, to further illustrate their sort of versatility in what they may be able to do. They get to have two choices of proficiency in skills between arcana, deception, history, uh, intimidation, investigation, nature, and religion. So some of those are very studies-based, you know, like history and investigation. Those are intelligence-based or even arcana, you know, also intelligence-based. So, Moving on away from some of the more technical things, I do want to talk about what makes Warlocks unique. Now, the the thing that I like to talk about, you know, each class has their thing. The thing that I think makes Warlocks stand out are their access to Eldritch Invocations. Now, Eldritch Invocations are magical bits of knowledge that can help your character. Some of them grant you spells that you can cast at will. Um, or with limitations. Some grant you body and mind altering effects, and some of them also bolster and help one of your main spells that you'll be using called Eldritch Blast. Now, some of these Eldritch invocations do have prerequisites. Um, I think some of them have level prerequisites, like Bewitching Whispers has a seventh level prerequisite. Um, or Bond of the Talisman is a 12th level prerequisite, and you have to have the the boon pact of the talisman feature so that's you know detailed in the books or websites that it, whatever you're using so you just have to go based off of those prerequisites but um, something that's also pretty cool is that you do get uh, an increasing number of invocations that you know as you level up and each time you can 
uh, each time you level up, you can swap out an invocation for another one if you didn't really like the one that you chose or found out that it maybe wasn't as useful to you as you thought. So some that I want to talk about that I think are really cool, like the one that I'd mentioned regarding giving you spells that you can cast at will, one of them is called the Mask of Many Faces. This is one of my most favorite Eldritch invocations. This gives you the ability to cast Disguise Self at will without expending a spell slot. So normally Disguise Self is a first level illusion spell, and normally it would take a spell slot to cast. But you can cast this at will, so you can change your appearance anytime you want, no matter the number of times that you want. And basically, you can just be another person all day if you wanted. Since you get to cast it at will, and it only lasts an hour, you could just keep re-upping this Disguise Self spell. And I think that's a really, really cool flavor for a Warlock, especially if you're going to be using Charisma for a lot of your skills. That puts you, you know, being able to intimidate or deceive someone really, really well. And I think that just bolsters what skill you're building upon skills that you already have. Um, another one thing that I think is pretty cool is called Devil's Sight. So depending on what race that you pick, um, if you'd like to have, you know, dark vision with one of your with with your race, you can. But if you don't want to choose that for a race, you can also take Devil's Sight, which you can see normally in darkness, both magical and non-magical, a distance to 120 feet. And that is actually better than dark vision because even with dark vision, you cannot see through magical darkness. But with Devil's Sight, you'd be able to see through magical darkness. And the last invocation that I'd like to at least bring up because there is a massive list of invocations that you could possibly choose from. Um, the last one that is pretty bread and butter for starting warlocks is Agonizing Blast. So as I talked about previously, Eldritch Blast is the the bread and butter of warlock cantrips it is a 1d dent cantrip of force damage that you can uh cast basically it is at will because it is a cantrip and it is a d20 roll plus your spell attack modifier and it is just 1d10 but with agonizing blast when you cast that eldritch blast cantrip you can add your charisma modifier to the damage it deals on a hit and what is pretty important to note is that your Eldritch Blast, each as, as it levels up, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a little bit, but as it levels up, you do get an increased number of beams. So it may be doing 3d10 at some point, but that's three individual beams. So that is adding a Charisma mod to each hit. So flat, if you have a plus five to your Charisma, that's 15 damage that it's guaranteed to go through. And I think that's pretty cool. Now, the second thing that is the thing that I would say is um, unique for Warlocks is that they get Mystic Arcanum. So once you reach ninth level, your spells will be as potent as they can be for the rest of your adventure. You will be casting at fifth level, starting at ninth level, um, and that may seem a little, a little frustrating for someone that wants to be casting these high-level spells, but... Once you reach 11th level, 13th, 15th, and 17th level, you get access to what is called Mystic Arcanum. Um, at 11th level, you get to choose a 6th level spell from the Warlock spell list, um, and you can cast this spell once without expending a spell slot, and then you have to finish a long rest before you can do so again. So essentially, you are getting these spells that you get to cast for free once per day. At sixth level, you get the or at eleventh level, you get the sixth level. Thirteenth level, you get the seventh level spell. 
15th, you get the 8th. And at level 17, you get the 9th level spell that you can cast. So it is a little bit limited higher levels, but you do get these four spells that are higher level upper bound spells that you get to cast. Um, and then all of your other spells that you're casting are cast at fifth level. So you can potentially, if you're worried about damage or things like that, don't worry. Warlocks are very potent when it comes to dealing damage. And that's essentially getting those spells at that at that point for free, right? You're going to cast those with Mystic Arcanum. Those spells that you get are cast for free. Yeah, it is cast for free. You do get them once per long rest. But, I mean, realistically, you know, you only get one ninth level spell slot as a you know an upper bound caster anyway. So you're only going to be casting that once per per day anyway, you know, as a, as a higher level caster. So it's not too much different from full casters that aren't warlocks that get access to these higher level spells. Um, now I do want to talk about subclasses. Um, you do get your subclass at level one because you're making your pact at level one. So you do get your subclass as soon as you sign that pact. The three I want to talk about are the fiend, the genie and the hexblade. So the Fiend is pretty iconic to Warlock. If you, if you think about selling your soul to the devil, it's the Fiend. Um, a lot of the spells that are granted are fire-based or, or how you might think about hell, fire, hot, things like that. Um, you do get uh, basically a, a luck bonus grant to you by your Fiend patron. Um, you're able to... Uh, sap away hit points from other creatures that you destroy and gain temporary hit points equal to your charisma mod plus your warlock level. One of my favorite things from the fiend is hurl through hell. That is the 14th level feature. Uh, when you hit a creature with an attack, you can basically chuck this creature, this poor creature through hell. And when it comes back from that nightmare landscape, it takes 10 D 10 psychic damage as it reels from its horrific experience. You can do that once per long rest um, only, but flavor-wise, it's pretty insane. I think it's kind of ridiculous. You tell your opponent to go to hell, and they do. Literally, they go to hell. Yeah. Um, so the second one is the genie. Now, we did talk about this in our review of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, if you'd like a little bit more of an in-depth, I would suggest that you go listen to that, because I'm just going to be grazing on some of the cool features here. But essentially, you're making a pact with a noble genie. Um, it does depend on which element of genie that you are making a pact with, uh, gaining whatever uh, spells. You know, a Tao is all earth, genie is wind, Ifriti is fire, and Marid is water. So you'll get spells based off of, you know, those type of flavor. Um, but I think the thing that's really unique and cool about this class is that you do get a genie's vessel, be it an oil lamp or a stoppered bottle or a lantern or even like a, a horcrux ring, essentially. You can fit inside it and have a sanctuary that you get to sleep in. Um, it does remain on the material plane, but you get to sleep inside your, your vessel. Or you can add damage based off of what element your genie is per attack. Um and at some points, you can even bring your party members into the vessel as well, and they get additional hit points or additional healing. Um, and at the end of it, what do you think about uh, genies? When you think when you when you think about genies, what do you think about? You think about your three wishes. 
at 14th level, you do get a feature called Limited Wish, where you can basically desire speak your desire as an action to your genie's vessel, and you can create the effect of a 6th level spell or lower, that is the casting time of one action, and it will happen for you. Um, and you can't use it again until you finish 1d4 long rests. So it's quite potent, but also has a pretty big drawback. But I still think that's pretty cool, is you've made a pact with a genie, you get your own genie vessel that can do all of these different mystical things, and you get a wish, basically, once every four days. Now, the last one I did want to quickly mention is the Hexblade. Uh, we'll talk about playstyle here in a moment, but um, the Hexblade is actually a different style of playing Warlock. You have made a pact with a, a cursed blade or a, a being from Shadowfell that manifests itself in a sentient magical weapon. Um, and you get to use that weapon in battle. All of your spell lists that you get uh, when you make this pact are smites or spells that bolster your weapon attack. Um, I think the thing that makes this one so unique and so cool is that you do get to hex your opponents. And the Hexblade's curse that gets applied to your opponents does different magical effects. Um, you know, once you curse something it is cursed for one minute and you can gain a bonus to damage rolls against the cursed target equal to your proficiency bonus or any attack roll you make against the cursed target is a critical on the roll of a 19 or a 20 um, and if the cursed creature dies you regain hit points equal to your warlock level plus your charisma mod so and it just builds upon that uh, at later levels you can even raise them from the dead at some point and have them fight alongside you and I think that's really, really cool. So it's a different, a little bit different of a flavor because you're not casting spells too much, but you are using this accursed blade, or even if you wanted to, like a holy blade, you could have a a, a good guy hexblade that's made a pact with um, some sort of up a creature from the upper planes and their holy weapon. So however you'd want to flavor that, I think is up to you. Um, so some spells that I think are pretty iconic for Warlock, maybe some to get you excited, is Eldritch Blast is the first one. That is that cantrip. That is the 1d10. It just gets even better and better as you level up. And at, uh, at level 17, it's four beams. So 4d10. And if you do take that Agonizing Blast, it's 4d10 plus 20, essentially. It's pretty insane, as long as each one hits. Um, another one that is a Warlock-only spell is Arms of Hadar. So essentially, you are causing these inky black tendrils to erupt from your body and batter all the creatures within 10 feet of you, and they take 2d6 necrotic damage, and they can't take reactions until their next turn if they fail to save. And I think it's pretty cool that you have a self-preservation spell that you can cast as a warlock. If somebody's up in your face and you're maybe not playing the Hexblade and you don't want to have people up in your face this is a good deterrent is you've got these arms of Hadar around you to help batter them away. Um, another one that you get is called that you have access to is called hellish rebuke. This is a reaction spell that once you take damage, you can actually use your reaction to uh, erupt the creature that just attacked you in flames. Um, it is a 60 foot range, unfortunately, but they take two D six fire damage if they do not make the deck save. And this only just levels up. So as you level up as a Warlock and your Warlock spells are getting cast at higher level, this does just more and more damage to them. 
Uh, and the last one is Hex. I think the Hex is really, really cool. It just it goes right along with the Hexblade's curse. If you do cast Hex, it is concentration for an hour. It is a first level spell, 90 foot range. Uh, until the spell ends, you deal an extra 1d6 necrotic damage to that target whenever you hit them with an attack. Also, uh, you get to choose one ability when you cast a spell, and the target has disadvantage on any ability check made with that chosen ability. So if some not-so-strong creature is in a chokehold by one of your fighters or barbarians and you want to make sure they stay in that chokehold, maybe you hex them and give them disadvantage on strength checks so that they have to stay in that chokehold. Um, and also, if they do drop to zero hit points before the spell ends, you can use your bonus action to change it to a new creature. So you can have your hex going around the field each time that hexed creature dies. So I talk about playstyle a little bit, and I do want to mention that Warlocks are interesting because they are full casters, yes, so they do want to stay protected in the backline, but with their proficiency with weapons and light armor, that does suggest that they can be mid-range or take a few hits if you'd like. Um, or if you hex play the Hexblade, they'll be right in the front line swinging their Cursed Sword uh, with right next to the Barbarian and Fighter. Um, and they can be played in whatever way you want, which I think is pretty interesting. Like I mentioned earlier before about you could max them in wisdom or intelligence after your charisma. So however you want to play the warlock, I think is an interesting choice. Um, and what makes warlocks so fun is that the potential is there for the player to have this warlock speak to their patron through the DM. I mentioned this with clerics. I think this is just as cool with warlocks. If your DM is comfortable doing so, you can have that conversation with your DM and say, hey, I really want to be involved or hands-on with my patron. Do you mind playing them? I'd love to speak to them often and maybe commune with them. Can we make something happen? And I think, you know, depending on the patron, the DM could be very hands-on or hands-off. But regardless, there is my a little bit over 15-minute elevator pitch on why i think that warlocks are pretty damn cool yeah thematically they're very interesting and allow for some some really cool uh role play as you mentioned especially with their interaction with their patron mm -hmm. interacting with your patron i think can make warlocks it can make or break that for me in my opinion can make or break the warlock experience i know that currently the the warlock that's in my campaign right now um you know, she talks quite a lot to her patron and had a lot of conversations with them, either asking for guidance or at some point basically asking who is my next target. And I think that's really cool that, you know, you get a little bit of an in with the DM, but also the DM gets to shape how the how the patron interacts with their warlock. Definitely, definitely. So... Tell me all about rogues. Tell us all about why rogues are also pretty dang cool. Well, rogues are very cool. They're an interesting class that uh, can do quite a lot of cool things. Um, they're the class that uh, is, is characterized by infiltration, stealth. Um, maybe they are a current or former member of a thieves' guild. Uh, they're the type of class that's going to be often using their wits, cunning, charisma to um, interact with NPCs, gather information. Uh, perhaps gain access to locations otherwise uh, that are protected and secluded. Um, the thing that makes uh, rogues unique, um, the reasons that you pick rogue is a, a couple of things. First is sneak attack damage, and the second one is the how good of an action economy class that they are. And so first of all, let's talk about sneak attack. What it is, it is a, a, an extra 1d6 of damage when you attack 
with certain parameters. You get to add this if you have advantage on the attack or if an ally is within five feet of your target. Um, the target also has to um, not be incapacitated, so, you know, not dead. Um, and also, if you don't already have disadvantage. Um, and it's just 1d6. may not sound like a lot, but it, it does scale as you level up. So starting at third level, um, you add 1d6 every other level. So, for example, 2d6 at third level, 3d6 at fifth level, 4d6 at seventh level, etc., etc. Um, and so I said, you get this, you get to add this damage if you have advantage. The ways, some examples of ways that you could get advantage is if you successfully hide against the target and they can't see you. Um, there are certain abilities that you, the rogue, can have that give yourself advantage. There are certain abilities that your allies have that can give you advantage. Um, depending on the situation, it could be up to the DM's discretion to say, uh, oh, in this scenario, you have advantage on the attack. Um, or if, you, uh, if you're playing in a campaign that uses... Uh, inspiration, where the DM is handing out inspiration, you could use that to give yourself advantage. Um, and the other really awesome and powerful thing about sneak attack is if you get a critical hit with it, it also doubles that sneak attack damage as well. Or depending on how your DM is running critical hits, it might just be you get to uh, roll that uh, dice twice. Um, so as this is also scaling, as it's adding to the damage that you're already doing on top of uh, the damage with your, your blade or with your short bow, crossbow, um, this damage scales. And it, that's what makes rogues really good is they get to do a ton of damage in a, in a short burst. Uh, and we'll talk about how that uh, scales up or it gets even better with different subclasses later. The other thing about rogues, like I mentioned, is their action economy. Starting at second level, they have this feature called cunning action. And what they can do with that is spend a bonus action to take the hide, disengage, or dash actions. Normally for every other class, these are full actions. With rogues, you can do it as a bonus action. That doesn't that might not sound like a whole lot on paper. It might not sound big and flashy and impressive, but what that means is um, you can, instead of spending a full action to take the disengage or to dash uh, or to try to uh, try to hide, you can uh, instead just use those as a bonus action, um, then freeing up your action to do other things like make an attack, um, or or you know you can use your movement, um, just a whole lot of just frees up you have to do a whole lot of different things uh, in combat. So a lot of the times what rogues are doing is uh, they're using their bonus action to hide in order to give themselves advantage. So that they then get sneak attack damage, and then they're gonna, uh, you know, rise out from behind the the box of crates that they hid behind, and then take a shot and, and get sneak attack damage. Um, that is a very common uh, chain of actions for rogues: is to bonus action hide, and then take an action to get sneak attack. Um, or they could, uh, you know, take bonus action disengage, and you know, not allow their enemies to gain uh, opportunity uh, reaction uh, opportunity attacks against them. Um, the other thing, well, this is an optional feature in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, it just makes rogues uh, still even better. It's a third level feature called Steady Aim. Um, we'll get into why this is really good later. Um, but basically what this does is uh, you can spend a bonus action to just give yourself advantage um, if you have not moved that turn and you can't move for the rest of your turn after that. Steady Aim, the idea being that you're spending your movement to uh, get a steady shot on your enemy. Um, it does not specify that this needs to be a ranged attack, so this could just be, I'm gonna you know, steady myself to get a good uh, a dagger stab or something like that. Um, but it's nice because it's sort of like guaranteeing your bonus action hide. Or if you're not in a situation where you could hide, you could just 
bonus action, steady aim, give yourself advantage, and then get sneak attack. Um, so we're going to go into like some of the subclasses uh, in a minute about how that just gets insane. Um, but first, the main stats of Rogue, as you might guess, they're mainly a dexterity-based class as they will be attempting to move unseen uh, through the terrain, through through the city, um, which is a stealth check. Um, they're going to be often, you know, manipulating small objects, picking locks, pickpocketing, which is a sleight of hand check, um, or just simply using straight up dexterity to get out of the way of an a uh, AOE effect. Um, after that, it's kind of up to you as to what direction you want to take your rogue. If you want them to be um, the type that is going to be interrogating NPCs and trying to persuade the guards and whatnot. You want to have a charisma-based rogue um, or an intelligence where they're trying to piece together the clues. Um, it's really up to you, but primarily they're a dexterity-based class. Um, so proficiencies for rogues, they have uh, proficiencies in light armor, um, so they do get some protection. Uh, simple weapons, which is going to be like your daggers, clubs, hand axes. Uh, they have proficiencies in hand crossbows, long swords, rapiers, short swords. So a, a wide variety of things, of, of weaponry that they are proficient in, uh, which means you could be a, a ranged sort of a rogue and, you know, be firing your hand crossbow a lot. Um, or you could be, you know, somebody that is uh, trying to sneak in and, and stab with a dagger. Uh, you can even throw your daggers and, and still play a ranged rogue, but you use your daggers often. Um, proficiency with thieves tools, um, as you might expect. Um, and then um, you get to choose four skills from a pretty long list, but I'll just say that most of the time you're picking stuff like stealth, sleight of hand, uh, persuasion, perception, investigation, insight, um, all the things that you would expect rogues to be good at being, uh, you know, lockpicking, sleight of hand, stealth, uh, interrogating NPCs, uh, gathering information about uh, the situation, sneaking ahead. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the rundown of the proficiencies. Uh, a little bit on the main subclasses, um, and there's actually up to nine official subclasses. Um, I'm going to highlight three of them. I think why rogues are so good, we've already discussed, is the sneak attack and their action economy. So no matter what you want to do with rogues, they're going to be good anyways because all rogues have sneak attack and cunning action. Um, but the three that I want to highlight here is first is the swashbuckler subclass. Um, besides the fact that you're a pirate, there are a lot of other really cool reasons why swashbucklers are so good. Um, at third level, they have a feature called fancy footwork. And what this allows you to do is if you make a melee attack against a creature, that creature can't make opportunity attacks against you for the rest of the turn. Um, what this means is it frees up your bonus action so you don't have to use it to disengage. You can use bonus action to do you know any other uh, number of things. Uh, maybe you've got a feature or something that allows you to bonus action do something else. Or you can bonus action... Um, dash or a bonus action uh you know do a, a, a it's not likely that you're going to be able to hide in front of somebody if you're you know right up with them but if you are taking uh, if you are using that um steady aim feature from tasha's you could uh bonus action use that to give yourself advantage on the next attack um the other third level ability with swashbuckler is called a rackish audacity this allows you to add your charisma modifier to your initiative rules so if you are going swashbuckler Probably your second stat that you're going to be, you know, putting uh, your 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 numbers into is charisma. Um, you add your charisma modifier to your initiative rolls, which is going to mean you're going to go first a lot more often in combat. Uh, also, 
uh, you get sneak attack damage if you're within five feet of your enemy and no others are no other allies are within five feet uh, of that enemy with all the other normal sneak attack restrictions in place as well uh, which essentially means if you're just 1v1ing an enemy you get sneak attack damage even though you know they can see you you're right up in their business because you're a swashbuckler because you're a pirate you still get to add your sneak attack damage to uh, to that rule um, there's some other really cool stuff later on, but I think this, these are the things that really make uh, me wanting to play Swashbuckler, besides the fact that it's a Swashbuckler and you get to be a pirate. The next one, um, the next subclass I want to highlight is the Assassin subclass. This one really pushes sneak attack way over the top as to how good it is. And at third level, you have this thing called Assassinate. This makes it insane. Assassinate gives you advantage against creatures that haven't taken a turn in combat yet. And remember that if you have advantage, you have sneak attack damage. Um, so essentially, a lot of times what you're gonna be doing if you're playing an assassin rogue is stealthing ahead just to see who is who you're about to engage with. Um, or if you happen to have a pretty high initiative bonus anyways and you're going first in combat, you still get this as well. Um, and then you're just starting the fight by dealing a ton of damage right off the bat. The other thing that you get with uh, the assassinate feature is hits against creatures that are uh, surprised are considered critical hits. Um, to gain surprise, you have to specifically try to stealth and try to make yourself uh, hidden. Um, it's a stealth check versus their passive perception, um, which if you are taking the assassin rogue, you're probably dumping a lot of stuff into uh, stealth and into uh, dexterity. Um, but combine all this stuff together uh if you're an assassin rogue and you're taking a, an, an attack against somebody that hasn't taken turn in combat and they're surprised you're getting you're getting advantage you get sneak attack and you're also getting a critical hit uh, which means uh keep in mind like i said before if it's a critical hit you still get to double those sneak attack damage dice as well so you're doing double sneak attack damage uh as well as your normal damage. It's just you're starting off the fight by dealing a ton of damage, sometimes even outright killing your enemy before they even have a chance to notice that you're there. Um, there's some stuff that you get with the Assassin Rogue later on, but at, I think there should be enough to excite you about playing an Assassin Rogue. They're ridiculously strong and push that sneak attack damage well over the top of how powerful it is. Um, keep in mind that it does start at uh, 1d6 at first level, but once you're at third level, you're up to... 2d6 and it just gets even better beyond that um so think about a you know a fifth level assassin rogue uh they get 3d6 for sneak attack but if they are um attacking somebody that hasn't taken a turn yet and they're hidden and they're uh, you know getting surprise on that creature uh that's potentially you know 6d6 worth of damage on top of whatever they do uh just base pretty powerful um and the last subclass i want to highlight I just want to talk briefly about this one is the soul knife subclass from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. We're just going to briefly talk about some of the third level stuff. We did cover this in a previous episode where we were going through the classes on Tasha's. So if you want more information, I definitely recommend you checking that episode out. Um, but the soul knife rogue, they get access to this psionic power where they uh, get these psionic energy dice that they can use to kind of up their attack, um, help them out in combat. Uh, the couple of things that I want to talk about as, as what makes this really cool is, um, I'm not covering everything, but at third level, you have this thing called Psychic Whispers, 
which lets you create this telepathic link between you and some allies. Um, you roll one of these psionic energy dice, and that's the number of hours you get this link. Um, it's a range of one mile, and you don't even need to have a common language in order to understand each other. So you could even, you know, use this ability on uh, uh, some creature that, you know, NPC out in the wild that doesn't speak your language. Most of the time, you're probably using it with allies, but it just allows you to be even more stealthy. Um, you could sneak ahead to uh, investigate, and then you've got this telepathic link. You don't have to, you know, try to sneak back to your allies and report back, or it's kind of taking the place of like a sending stone, for example, which is a magical item that allows you to uh, basically talk back and forth. It's like a, it's like the walkie-talkie of D&D. But instead here, it's an ability, and it's telepathically. Um, just something that you get to do. Uh, you also, with this psionic power, can create these psychic blades. And in, in uh, the Soul Knife, it kind of just lets you uh, create two of them in your hands, and so you're going to get two attacks instead of just one. Um, and you're adding that sneak attack damage on top of that, as per usual with rogues. Um, then there's a really cool thing at ninth level. Um, this is the only, only ninth level thing I'll talk about with rogues. Um, but basically, you can you know take this psychic blade that you created and uh, roll one of your, your, your psionic energy dice, throw your blade, and you get to teleport to wherever the blade ended up. I think that's really cool. Um, so th that's the, uh, uh, the, the soul knife rogue, kind of the, the things that excite me about that. Um, getting to, uh, you know, use these psionic energy dice to bolster your attacks. Uh, so generally I, I kind of touched on play style for rogues a little bit, but basically you're always on the lookout for places to hide places that you could give yourself that sneak attack damage. You're looking for places that where you can, uh, investigate scenarios, situations, environments without being um, detected. Uh, out of combat, you're, you're using your high dexterity to scout ahead stealthily and make sure that people don't see you. You're uh, often in dungeons. You're, you're the one that's going to be checking for traps, um, picking locks, uh, you know, disengaging uh, traps, uh, just trying to get a lay of the land. Uh, in combat, you're, like I said, looking for places to hide, looking for places to give yourself that sneak attack damage. Um, you could play as a ranged rogue, uh, where you're either throwing your daggers or shooting a short bow. Um, you could play as a, a melee rogue, where you're trying to kind of flank, um, flank the skirmishes and then get up uh, and then make your, your sneak attack. Um, often, the chain of action with rogues, as mentioned before, is bonus action hide action attack and then get the sneak attack and depending on your subclass that could be you know a, a ton of damage if you're the assassin rogue or um you know it's still a fair bit of damage with every other rogue that's not the assassin but that's generally how it goes is bonus action hide action attack get sneak attack that's very common for rogues um so that's that's my uh short pitch on rogues and um yeah if you're the type that likes to Use your infiltration and stealth and cunning to scout the territory, get a lay of the land, uh, flank from the sides, and deal a ton of damage. Rogue's a really fun class. Yeah, I tend to think about rogues as like the taskmasters. They may not have magic, they may not have access to spells or things like that, but what they do have to not quote a movie are a very specific set of skills. Exactly. Um, and they can, they can do so much with those skills. Like you said, they have access to four skills to have proficiency in. Um, so that's four different things that they can potentially do better than the rest of the party. They may not have magic, but they can do that physically. They can do a lot of those things physically. Um, and I 
love their cunning action being able to dash as and as a bonus action hide as a bonus action like being able to dash as a bonus action is so so nice there's been plenty of times where it's like i don't have the movement to get up to someone if only i was able to dash and then still attack them and rogues can do that and i think that's really really awesome and very helpful yeah oftentimes if you want to get into combat or get away from something you have to spend your full action and then that's all you do with your turn but rogues they can bonus action dash have a ton of movement get to where they need to be um and, and then still have action attack on top of that and uh, as you mentioned they aren't casters there is a subclass that gives you access to spells but i think that's not what i'm excited about with rogues um they make up for it in their action economy and just how much damage they do with sneak attack it gets pretty crazy oh yeah super fun um so yeah, I got through my my information on Rogue pretty quickly, but they're an interesting class. Don't take my lack of words as as a reason why you don't pick Rogues. They're really cool. They're really interesting. Um, I encourage you to go check out the episode on Tasha's where we talk about the uh, the new subclasses for Rogue. Um, but yeah, I think the ones that I, I covered are pretty interesting. Swashbuckler, be a pirate. Assassin, hit stuff real hard, real quick. And Soul Knife, use psionic energy to do cool, to do cool stuff. Um, so I think that's about it for my my bit on rogues then. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think rogues are super fun. I was fortunate enough to play a swashbuckler rogue once, and it was tons of fun having a very charismatic rogue. Um, and even at one point, you can add your charisma modifier to your initiative roll. So... Yeah, often they're able to be out there first is really fun. Often they are going first in combat uh, because they have a high dexterity. They're a dexterity class by default. Well, that's what you should do anyways. Um, so that's also another thing that makes assassins so good. They're often going early in initiative, if not first. So they're often going to have advantage on those things that haven't gone yet. Uh, which means they're getting that sneak attack damage. Assassins get sneak attack pretty much almost, you know, all the time. You know, at least with their first attack is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, I'm kind of rambling on rugs now. I think that's going to do it for our show this week. So thank you guys for stopping by. If you like this episode, please check out our future episodes, which will release Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Central. Next episode, we're going to continue our beginner-friendly series and uh, continue uh, this introduction to these classes as we discuss Paladin and Fighter. This has been Discussions and Dragons. I'm Jaren. And I'm Britton. And we'll see you next time.